on the truths that we have been looking at in the book of the Revelation. And it, it casts a, I was going to say an almost a different viewpoint, but it's the viewpoint of, um, of the psalmist. And the psalms are written somewhat, a little bit differently, but it's not just the viewpoint of a psalmist that puts his words to song and into poetry. It's, it's the, 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 the prophetic viewpoint as well, looking forward to the glorious things that we have been finding out through the book of Revelation. And the, the psalm really brings the whole thing into, into perspective and then takes us right through the period to the final climax that we're looking at in Revelation 19 and we'll be looking at in Revelation 20 and the finality of chapter 21. So it's Psalm 110 in light of all that we have been considering. Now, before I read it, so that as I read it, you'll pick up some of the thoughts I'm saying so that you've got some idea of where we're going in the psalm. Because in actual fact, to get the flow of thought through the psalm is quite difficult because of the imagery, the poetry that's used. I was quite heartened, I was struggling with it myself, but I was heartened to read uh, Dr. McLaren and he said that um, most expositors regard this as the most difficult of all psalms to explain, so I felt a little better after that. But I'm going to bring it together for you, I think, in some sort of order that it has a glorious flow. Remember, this is actually a, a psalm of the shepherd king. This is one of David's psalms and it fits very much the theme that Brother Phil brought to us this morning, the shepherd king, the boy that was taken from the sheepfold to shepherd God's people Israel and to rule over them in that tremendous Davidic kingdom, king, um, kingship. Now, it's quoted 14 times in the New Testament, more than any other psalm, so it's, some, it's got some importance, this psalm 110. And it certainly was written by David because the Lord said it was, so there's kind of no argument about that. This psalm is about the king, it's about his subjects, and it's about his kingdom, all right? The king, the kingdom, and the subjects. The king is presented as a king-priest, a king-priest. The two roles go together. And you'll notice as we read it that he is first presented as sitting, the king-priest-sitting. Now, bear in mind, when you finish going through this psalm, it can only apply to the Lord Jesus. It can't apply to any other king that Israel ever had. Now, what you see is there, the, the king, as a king-priest, is sitting, and the subjects are warring while he is there, as it were, sitting. But he is very much involved in their warfare. He's not sitting doing nothing while the fight goes on. The subjects are warring, the king is there sitting in full calm control, very much involved in their warfare. The kingdom that we're talking about is surrounded by enemies in this psalm. Surrounded by enemies. And yet the king is sitting while his subjects are warring. He is representing them in his priesthood. He is ruling over them in all his authority. He is ruling over all the warfare in its turmoil and its apparent dismay. He is there upon that throne, sitting yet involved completely and absolutely. Right, now that's the picture you're getting of the psalm. 
It's probably put together very, very beautifully just in Mark's summary of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Because what I'm going to bring out is the, the fact that through this psalm we're getting a picture of everything that happens to the king, to the kingdom, and to his subjects from the moment he ascended up on high and sat down on that throne to the very day when he comes back in public display and he rules with all public authority, kingdom and power and there is not an enemy left for there to be any more whatsoever. Now that's the picture of what we're getting here. But in the end of Mark, when, the Lord, when it's re- recorded of the Lord Jesus in the ascension, it says this, After the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat, got it, on the right hand of God. Now, wait wait a minute, what about the subjects that he's leaving behind? They went forth and preached everywhere past the boundaries of Jerusalem, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs that were following. Amen. The king enthroned, sitting, the subjects are in the warfare and warring and the Lord is deeply involved in what they are doing as he is working with them. So there it is. There's your your outlines and your seed thoughts and getting you to understand that this psalm has a continuing present application. Its application started at the ascension when the Lord Jesus was received up in glory. It has had an application right up to the now present. It has a current application right through to the final future when the glory of the Lord shall be seen in all its fullness and it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now I can read it. Hopefully with some little more, you've got just a little grasp of where it's going. This is what it says. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion, beyond Zion, the scepter of his rule. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore, Shall he lift up the head? Now, now notice all the imagery that's coming here. The, the, the rod of strength going out of Zion. The day of power. The beauties of holiness. The womb of the morning. The dew of youth. And then the picture of drinking at the brook by the way and lifting up the head. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a beautiful piece of literature. It's beautiful poetry. It's got beautiful imagery in it but it contains absolutely glorious truths. Look at verse 1. Because when you look at verse 1, what you're doing there is you're being privileged to listen to a record of a holy 
conversation that went on between the persons of the Godhead. The Lord said unto my Lord. And that is, Yahweh said to Adonai. These are the two titles in the Old Testament of God himself. The two great titles. In the Yahweh, the Jehovah, it's the God who is self-existent. God who is unchanging, continuing existence. The I am that I am that leaves us with a sense of awe and makes us take the shoes from off our feet like Moses did when that name was revealed to him and realized that we must worship. The Adonai is the title given to God as the one who is absolute sovereign over absolutely everything. It is all under his hand. And you have this holy conversation where... Is it where Yahweh says to Adonai, and it's, it's really a beautiful picture of God the Father speaking to God the Son. When God the Son has come back from the battle of Calvary, and he has burst out of death with resurrection, and he has risen into glory with mighty triumph, and he arises, as it were, back home in heaven. And the Father is going to fulfill the prayer of the Lord Jesus Glorify thou me with the glory which I had with you before the foundation of the world. And he says, sit in my right hand here. My vice-regent, co-equal, sharing the throne of God himself. And you sit there, as it were, until I make your enemies. The footstool of your feet. The, th- the thought here is sitting. That seems to hit you very hard as you... Realize the conversation and you see the posture of the Lord Jesus. And the idea is not that you sit and nothing's going on and nothing happens now and until maybe the end times when there's going to be a final battle. That's not the point. The point here is to sit because all is now under complete control. All is safe. The word, it have a, the word itself has a has a sense of quietness. It has a, a sense of rest. It has a certainty in it, the whole thing. Because complete victory is now absolutely certain. Since the work of redemption has been done at the cross, then the fullness of redemption must finally happen. He has already done all that's necessary. The kingdom of God and his purposes are from now on in absolutely no jeopardy. The kings of the earth, they may set themselves against him. The heathen may rage in their fury and want to cast off all restraint, but it will never happen. The basis has been laid, the work has been done, the foundation is secure, and he says, now sit as we move through this period of time, bringing in all the purposes and all the plans and all the intentions of God to put down evil and to bless his people, and to exalt his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father Christian, this morning, in today's world, I think we just need to get this firmly into our own hearts. Look at the turmoil. Look at the nations raging. Listen to the clamour of warfare. Listen to the rise. See the rising up of evil men. Notice the tearing down of all that's good and moral and all that has ever stood in the name of God. But remember, there's one on the throne. He is sitting because victory is certain and as everything is in God's mighty hand. You see, it's exactly like Revelation, isn't it? 
It's exactly like Revelation chapter 4, when, when John was given the first visions after he'd seen the churches. He, he just went up through that doorway into heaven, and the first thing is, I saw a throne set in heaven. Set fixed, in other words, and one was sitting on it. You see, everything's under divine control. We, we've been through it. Jesus the Saviour. Is Jesus the Sovereign? Is Jesus the Judge? He is fully man and he is fully God. He is the Adonai. And all things are in an omnipotent and powerful hand. And fellow Christian, let's rest there this morning. We're in the scene of warfare. Yes. We're in an enemy's land. Yes. And the kings of the earth will lift up their nation, their names against him. Yes. But he is sitting enthroned. And you can just imagine the picture, can't you, that we've just touched it. It's wonderful you think of the Lord Jesus going up there in glory, being received up in glory, being actually received into glory, and then from the resurrection, the ascension, glory, he just sits waiting for the final outcome of his, the complete and full outcome of his finished work. Because everything that's necessary has been done and the program of God and redemption is set in motion in absolute certainty, resting upon Christ the solid rock, of our salvation and his atoning and his finished work. Everything's been done. You look at it. The promise of Genesis 3, which would start the program of God, that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, that has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ who has come into the world. The strong man's house has been invaded. He can no longer keep his goods in peace. The power of Satan has been broken, absolutely broken. The power of death, which was his greatest weapon, has been destroyed. The power of darkness has been lit up with a blaze of light which can never be extinguished. The eternal light, the very light of God, is burst in on the darkness of Satan's kingdom. In the, don't never underestimate the meaning of the resurrection when the power of death was broken so the power of Satan was broken and the penalty for sin has been fully paid fully paid we meditated on that this morning the penalty for sin has been fully paid in the vicarious death of the Lord Jesus Christ and all our need has been met that's why he's a priest king we'll touch on that if we get there this morning and more than that, all the claims of God, all that he ever required because of sin, have been fully met. Full atonement. The atoning necessities where there must be a death for sin. There must be a sacrifice for sin. There must be a life laid down. There must be a perfect, righteous man who would die in the place of unrighteous, guilty sinners. All of that has been done. It's bound up in the words of the Lord Jesus in his, his second last saying on the cross, the penultimate, the sixth saying on the cross, when he cried out, it was with a loud voice, a loud voice, finished. Atonement was made. For in those hours of darkness, when he suffered the forsaking of God, he then would bow his head and die. But the cry was a loud cry. It was one word, Tetelestai finished, and it was with a loud voice. So he sits, you see. You get the picture already. Why? Well, the work's done, the basis laid, the continuing unfolding of the plans of God in redemption are certain and set in motion in their fullness, and the final putting down of evil. Yes, 
and the blessing of the people of God, yes, and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely certain. And those three things I've mentioned actually outline the entire plan of God from since the fall. That is to bring blessing to sinful man and bring man back to himself. And that is indeed to put down every form of evil till it doesn't exist anymore. And you'll get that when we get to the end of Revelation, won't we? And we see the people of God blessed, but the Lord Jesus Christ exalted in giving his rightful place. And get it quite clear that there's an ongoing program now through the psalm and through the days in which we live. The Lord Jesus is there sitting, but the whole purposes and plans of God are being brought to fruition. And they won't be finished until every enemy has been put under the feet, under the control of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he's sitting there working through that program. Because there is in the present time when sinners are being brought into submission under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. But it will climax in every unrepentant sinner being brought into submission under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. So you see there's submission and it's in salvation or there's submission and it's in judgment. Now go to verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, saying, Rule, no, rule, thou in the midst of thine enemies. And you see, the rule has already begun. I mean, we're a witness to that this morning. Every one of us, we were once enemies in our minds. We were alienated from God by our wicked works. We were actually the enemies of God but we've been reconciled to God through the death of his son. We've been brought under the scepter of the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time a soul is saved, every time it happens, the kingdom of God, the scepter, the rule of Christ, is being extended in the presence of his enemies. We live in a sinful world, a God-hating world, a Christ-rejecting world, and yet we've been brought under the sway, under the scepter of the shepherd king, of a saviour who died for us. And it reaches its climax, of course, where the, where the scepter goes out of, the, uh, of thy strength, goes out of Zion in its fullness, in that coming day when we read about it in Revelation 19, when everything's being brought beneath his feet in finality. And notice the fullness of it. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength, the scepter of rule, out of Zion. And I read that first and I thought, well, you know, that's where the Lord will sit and rule and the... That's where the rain will come from. It's more than that. It's, it's the kingdom itself, right, is going beyond Zion, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Israel, beyond the boundaries of one nation. This is the triumph of the Christ. It's going from Jerusalem, but it's extending to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham and what did he say? He says, in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And the tremendous thing is that today there's a gospel message whereby sinners can come and bow at the Saviour's feet and the message goes to the whosoever will, to every tribe, every tongue, every nation and to every kingdom. It's what Simeon said as he held that dear babe in his arms. I, I wish I could paint. I wish I could paint. I'd love to paint the picture of the old priest Simeon holding the babe in his arms. His face would be lifted up to heaven. His eyes would be just absolutely aglow. And he says, this is what I've got, a light to lighten the Gentiles 
and the glory of thy people Israel. The rod, the scepter is going out of, beyond the boundaries of Zion to the whosoever will. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11 brings it out again. There shall arise a deliverer out of Zion and the Lord shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now this is a wonderful truth because, because it, it establishes something. Satan has been and had been deceiving the nations totally up until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He held them in, in his hand. The only true light was in Israel, the light of the true and the living, the singular God, monotheism. The nations all believed in multiple gods, many, many gods. He had been deceiving them completely. What does the prophet say? The nations that sit in darkness, right? They have seen, and in the shadow of death, they have seen a great light. This is the glory of the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan's power in deceiving all nations is broken. Now how? Through the power of the gospel. That's how it's broken. Through a message that's not just national, not just for some certain people. It's a message that is for the whole of an unredeemed world. So his rod goes out of Zion. And he is, you can see the picture of what's going on. It's not that he is sitting and doing nothing, but sitting, as it were, in the hands of an almighty God and his omnipotent power and bringing the whole program of redemption into fruition and into glorious climax when finally every enemy will ultimately be put down. Now that brings us to verse 3, one of the hardest verses to interpret. And they shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Yes, happening now. Yes, climaxing in that final day. Now look, I read it in the translation here. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. One of the most multiple translated verses, I think, in the scriptures says. You know, each translator seeks to get to the get to grips with the the imagery that's in there and the flow of thought. I'll give you the one which, well, I know two great expositors used it because it probably is the nearest to the original and still has some flow of thought. It's quite easy. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in holy splendor. Colon. From the womb of the morning shall come to thee. The dew of youth. Remember the setting. We are looking at a situation where there's warfare. We are looking at a situation where there's the gathering of a mighty army. What we're looking at is a scene in time where the church is militant. And what we're looking forward to is a glorious climactic day when all the enemies are put down and the church will be triumphant. We're looking at a time when the day of Christ with all his people will be reigning in splendor and peace and sheer magnificent glory, peace and joy in a day when there'll be not one single enemy left. Get the picture again, sitting on the one hand, yet bringing in his purposes on the other. The people in his kingdom are warring and the Lord is deeply involved and he's working with them and everything is being done and in place, and the process started at the ascension is continuing in the present through to the coming day. For right now he's already on the throne. 
Right now he is ruling. He's extending his kingdom now. He's doing it all in the presence of his enemies now. His people are willing, eagerly serving him now. And the Lord is working with them right now. But then in grand triumphant climax, in public rule with enemies displayed, enemies absolutely displaced and destroyed, and he'll reign as king of kings and lord of lords. Go back to that verse, please. Verse 3. And remember, it's poetry, all right? The Psalms are poetry. Like like we read Revelation, you know, you you don't read Revelation literally. You say, oh, that's a dreadful thing to say. (laughs) One preacher said that, and he said somebody screamed at him from the back of the hall. You know, you're changing scripture. It means what it says. Yeah, but what we mean is this. You know, I don't really think the people of the world are going to go around following this incredible creature that's literally got seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns and, you know, and this blood and wounds all pouring from... It's not a literal figure, but it is, it is a figure, a picture, a verbal picture or a vision of representing the kind of character that will be in that day. Well, so it is when you write a poem. You use, you use imagery, you, you use pictures. You write a psalm and it says, and the trees are going to clap their hands. I don't really think in the coming day the trees are going to clap their hands because trees don't have hands, right? But you know what it is? It's a symbol of joy, of all creation rejoicing. Now you've got a couple of them here. You've got a couple of imageries here. One is the womb of the morning, right? That's what it says there. Let me go back to it. From the womb of the morning, and then the next one is the dew of youth. Follow me if you please. The womb of the morning. We're dealing with a symbol. We're dealing with something that speaks of the source of life. That from which life emanates. That from which new life comes. The morning, the dawning of a new day. The freshness of newborn life coming into fruition and into vision in the dawning of a brand new day. That's the first thing, the womb of the morning. And then you say, the dew of youth, that means the Lord's going to look young again. That's not even talking about the Lord. Stop that, it's not. I misread it that way myself and it's wrong. It's talking about the people in the day of his power. That's what it's talking about. Now the dew, the dew is a singular word, isn't it? That's the first thought. You say, oh the dew's wet this morning. Look at it all, yeah. And if you get a leaf and you pick it up and look at the dew, you'll see it's made of thousands, literally countless numbers of little droplets. Countless numbers of little droplets. So you've got numberless droplets coming down in the morning of a new day, and the dew just doesn't happen in Australia. It doesn't just happen in England. It doesn't just happen in Queensland. It happens over all the earth. You see that? It's gone past the boundaries of a nation, Zion. And there's the dew spreading over all the earth, made up of countless droplets, right? Yet in, 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 in one form together it's a singular thought. And you've got the idea of the dew in poetry, particularly right through the Greek writings, was picked up as meaning offspring. Alright? The new life. The offspring of any or the young of any creature. So you put them together and you can sort of see the connection. The womb, the source of that life from which it comes in its freshness. The dew meaning the offspring, the, the young of any creature. The womb of the morning, the dawning of a new day. 
the dropping down of the dew in its multiplicities of droplets, figurative of a whole scene of new life that will break out in that day for the glory of him who is sitting upon that throne. Take it further. In the day of his power and holy splendor, his people will willingly offer themselves in his service, voluntarily identifying themselves with him in the battle and with him in the triumph. They shall spring forth in new life at the dawning of that day, issuing out from his death, his burial and his resurrection, coming from all over the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every people and every nation. Hallelujah! What a glorious picture in imagery and in poetry. It began there on that resurrection morning. When the Lord Jesus said to Mary, Go tell my brethren a new relationship with a new meaning. I ascend unto my Father and your Father. A whole brand new source of life. The bringing in of the people of God, the children of God, the generation of God, the seed that will come and spring out of his death. Are you getting the picture of the new life of every newborn creature in Christ Jesus that has sprung from the womb of the resurrection morning? They will be seen in glorious splendor and in the full birth and triumph of glorified humanity in that day to come when Jesus reigns where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. Oh, hallelujah, what a picture this is. What poetry this is. You see the life that's coming out. You remember Psalm 22? Psalm 22 is the psalm about death. It starts off, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's the psalm that pictures most figuratively and indeed poignantly the death of the Lord Jesus upon the cross. But by the time you get to the end of Psalm 22, it says these words, A seed shall serve him. There shall come from that death a life, a generation, progeny of people, that are going to serve him. That's in Psalm 22. If you go to Isaiah chapter 53, the the prophet says there, look, he was cut off out of the land of the living, who shall declare his generation. What does that mean? Well, he died so suddenly and unexpectedly while he was still young that there was no time for any family to come from him or when he died to have a name left established here on earth, you see, who's going to declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. And you read the next verse on, and what does it say? He shall see his seed. Aha! He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of Jehovah shall prosper in his hands. There will become out of the the outcome of that death, the outcome of the travail of his soul, the outcome of God being satisfied with the sacrifice for sin will be a whole newborn generation of folks who are made like unto him who through his death have become the children of God. This here in these verses is a beautiful picture of Hebrews in chapter 2 where the Lord Jesus, he who destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil in Hebrews 2, it says... Speaks of him as the captain of our salvation, the file leader, the triumphant one ahead, as we follow on his willing people, ready, eager to follow and to serve. And it says, Behold, I am the children 
whom God has given me. Isn't that beautiful? Who shall declare this generation? You'll see them all in the coming day, fellow Christian, redeemed by his side, washed in the blood of the Lamb, eagerly, faithfully, gladly, voluntarily serving him. Thy people shall be willing in the day of his power. Now, literally, the translation there is in the day of the assembling of his army. You say, well, that's going to be a great thing in the day to come. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're spoiling the psalm. We do this all the time with prophetic things. We always throw it into a future day. And we miss the fact that the program is already unfolding. This is not just a future day. Let's go through the process. The day of the assembling of his army. You say, well, where did all that begin? Where did the assembling of the army start? And, and how did this rod, this rule of the Lord Jesus, go out of Zion, past the nation of Israel? How did it all happen? Well, you go back to that ascension, hey? You, you just go back to that upper room and you go back to, what have you got? You've got 11 men. That's when the army was first assembled. You say, well, that's pretty feeble. <laughs> that was the start of the whole thing. Eleven men to whom he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. The eleven men who waited for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them and who would begin at Jerusalem and then go to Judea and to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth in the warfare of the king who is now enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. They would go forth in the power of his name in the strength of the Holy Spirit, to preach the word, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and in the presence of enemies, to bring in the kingdom of God. It's one after the other, soul is saved, souls are saved, and the knee is bowed, glad submission, and in repentance and acceptance of the rule and reign of the shepherd who died, who is the king that rules. That's the picture you're getting. It's very beautiful. As I said, what did they look like? Nothing very much. But look at the transformation in these 11 men. There were several others in the upper room as well, but concentrating on the core of the army, as it were, these are the generals that are being assembled at that particular time. I mean, there's Peter. It says here in, in verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. They'll be willing. Peter, what? Peter, he's willing. On the day of Pentecost, he stands up, you can almost see the man, he's just so convincing and so convicted and so powerful in his preaching. This same Jesus, whom ye crucified, hath God made both Lord and Christ. And the sword goes out of Zion and 3,000 people are saved and they weren't all Jews. And he preaches again at the beautiful gate of the temple. 5,000 people saved. Can you see the seed that's coming in to serve? Can you see the Jew coming from the dawning of a new day of salvation? Can you see it all, the people of God being gathered in? 5,000 were saved that day at the beautiful gate of the temple. What's happened to Peter? What's happened to this man? What's made him willing? Because he wasn't willing before, was he? I mean, the Lord Jesus was being, being uh, really being harangued, actually, and accused in the high priest's house. And Peter sort of warming himself by the fire in the corner, giving little peeps to see how things are going. And then some servant girl comes up and says, oh, you're one of them too. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. He wasn't willing to go that far. And the, the man really, really lost himself. And when the Lord Jesus told Peter about the fact I'm going to the cross, he said, no, 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 don't be that. Not that, Lord. Not that way. And the Lord rebukes him powerfully, you know. 
Get behind me, Satan, he says. You're not thinking of the things of God. And here's the man totally transformed. Why is he transformed? Because he's seen a risen Christ ascend. They were witnesses of the resurrection, witnesses of the ascension. Now they are sure, they are certain. They know that he is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Peter is prepared now to die for the man of which he once would have run away from. Now, all the apostles are in the same situation. These are men. If you've got any doubts about the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, just look at the 11 men and look at them, the fact they were all prepared to lay down their life for what they believed because they knew it was true. And it's probably true to say that all the apostles, all the apostles died lives of deaths of martyrdom. People say, well, John probably didn't. Well, actually, if you look more closely, he probably did die on the Isle of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the only one that probably the historians argue about. But they all had one thing in common. They discovered the meaning of Psalm 110 and verse 1, sit thou at my right hand. They knew what they meant. That meant they saw him go up. Now, we too, as part of the seed, the dew that's come from the morning, as it were. The generation that has sprung out of that death. We too, we put on the whole armour of God. That's what we do. And in the evil day, we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and we're praying in all seasons, and in the midst of his enemies, in the very place where he was rejected, despised, and crucified, what we do is preach the message of the cross. Because I tell you, there is no way into that kingdom except by way of the cross. If a soul will come in repentance and bow at those feet of the man who was on the cross but is now on the throne and submit to his rule and crown him Lord of their life, there's salvation. Otherwise, those very same feet will crush every enemy, every Christ-rejecter beneath his feet in the day that is to come, because he will reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. Now that's going on now, and that's where it started. And just, just, just give yourself a little glimpse of what lies ahead. You just think of it in that day when all the people of God were assemb- will be assembled together. Can you, can you picture the countless multitude on high? Can you just imagine... We read it this morning, and it hit me when Brother Phil read it. There's going to be one fold, and there's going to be one shepherd... Can you imagine the gathering together into one of all the people of God? And they're going to be willing in that final day of his power, of his rule, of the assembling of his army. They will be there eager, willing, gladly serving, following, triumphant, always worshipping. And out of the freshness of the morning, as that glorious day dawns, his offspring, his seed, as numerous as the dewdrops, as numberless as the stars of the heaven, as countless as the grains of sand on every seashore, in the fullness of a new life, shall be seen in glorious display with him. The disciples said, Lord, are there few that be saved? I do not think so. Do you know the Lord Jesus never answered that question directly? What he said was, you be sure you're one of them. And that's the key, you see. You be sure you're one of them. You go and look at the answer he gave. 
But on that day, I think John Wesley captured it into perfection in all its absolute beauty. When he said, Lo, he comes from heaven descending, once for favoured sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah. Jesus comes, and he comes to reign. You get the picture? Because now you can go straight into verse 4, where it says, The Lord has sworn, and he will not repent. What does that mean? That just means this. Firstly, he will not repent. He will not change his mind. That's the point. The program of God is fixed and certain. That's why there's no disturbance in the chambers of the Godhead. He sits and the program moves forward through his people and through his support, through his strengthening and leading of them. And it's been sworn the Lord has sworn. There's an oath involved here. The idea of an, an oath is like a, a double guarantee of truth. Mind you, it's impossible for God to lie. He does not need to swear it. But he, because he could swear by none other, because you always swear by someone greater than yourself to sort of uh, say the fact that, yes, what I'm doing is right and true and will always be, and you're taking somebody else's name to back you up. Well, God couldn't swear by anybody greater than himself, so he swore by himself. So you've got his word and you've got his oath and he says, I swear I'm not changing my mind on this program. It's there and you're going to be a priest forever. He said, I thought we were talking about kings. Yeah, but wait a minute. You'll be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, what's the story about Melchizedek? Let's not get complicated about it because you can get really complicated about Melchizedek. All it is, is he's the one man in scripture who was a king and a priest. Now, you don't get that in Scripture. You get some wonderful kings. David, look at David. David was a tremendous king, but David was only a king. He wasn't a priest, and David died. You've got a man like Aaron, the great high priest. I mean, he was an incredible high priest, but he wasn't a king. And Aaron dies. But now, he says it's like Melchizedek. You've got kingship, and you've got priesthood. Isn't that lovely? Kingship and priesthood, because you've got rule, you've got sacrifice, you've got an offering, you've got a shepherd that gave his life for the sheep who's a king. And the two things are all brought together, and it's a kingdom that's an eternal kingdom. There's no death, you don't get any record of Melchizedek dying. It's an eternal kingdom, and it's an eternal throne, it's an everlasting priesthood, and it's an eternal covenant, and is based upon his blood. That is why, fellow Christian, now get this into your heart, that is why you could never come into judgment. You can't. It's impossible. Because the king who comes to rule with all authority and put down his enemies is the priest who gave the sacrifice for your sin to bring you to God. And God has affirmed that the two roles will never be changed. They will never be altered. They are ratified he is in his place, he is in his position, it is unalterable, and he ratifies our acceptance with his <coughs> eternal salvation. Salvation doesn't rest on what you have done, it rests on what he has done. Salvation does not rest on how you feel, it rests on what God has said, and he has sworn that the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, available to those of us who are saved and washed in his blood, that will be eternal, unchanging, 
and unalterable, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now the psalm just sort of flows to a lovely picture at the end. The Lord of thy right hand shall strike through kings. He'll break kings in pieces in the day of his wrath. He has already brought many a ruler down to nothing that has risen up and established kingdoms on earth that are against God and against his Christ. And Mr. Putin will have his day, but he'll come down. He'll have his day, but he'll come down. He'll strike through kings in the day of his wrath. We may see it, we may not see it, but in that day to come, there'll be no mention in the Lamb's Book of Life of a man like that. You see, that's why the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19, on his head were many crowns. He's conquered many kings. He's taken over, as it were, authority over many of the kingdoms of this world. Already. And he'll finally do it to the last one. He's breaking the kings in their pieces in verse 5. The people of God are willingly following him in in the beauties of holiness, of his holiness. He shall judge among the heathen. That's powerful. We saw that in Revelation 19. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. And he will wound or break in pieces the heads over many countries. And every godless ruler that ever has been or ever will be until the Lord comes, he'll bring them down to nothing because he's sitting on the throne and bringing in all the purposes of God. And they will come to fruition and all the enemies will be put beneath his feet and every evil thing will be utterly and totally destroyed. And there will only be the light of the glory of God and the fullness of the beauty of perfection. And Jesus reigning and we reigning with him in the loveliness of his holiness. What a picture. What a picture. And then it ends with a most striking verse. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. What does that mean? What does it mean? What's the picture there? You see this conquering king and you see this mighty army. And it's sweeping now in one grand battle right across the face of of the earth and destroying all that will not bow in submission and there's such a battle on and the picture is this he won't stop as it were midway and have a a celebration feast for what we've done so far no 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 the purposes of God have got to be fulfilled it's got to be fought until the battle's won and so instead of that he'll just as it were passing by he needs refreshment it won't be a glorious feast of refreshment it'll be a quick drink from the passing stream and lifting up his head he'll continue on until the purposes of God are finally and fully done there is no stopping until the work of judgment is finished on the cross it is finished that was the work of atonement for sin but on the throne in Revelation 21 it is done it's all done and then God rests Christ rules his people rest the blessing of full redemption comes in and we have on the throne Melchizedek inverted commas the one who is both the priest and the king capture this as I close it's the meaning of the lamb on the throne You see, the king who had the sacrifice. The king who was the sacrifice. To bring the sinner to God. The one who is the king and the priest forever. And in that day, the fullness of redemption 
will be enjoyed by the people of God when willingly we will offer ourselves yet again in the adoration and the uplifting of him who is the Redeemer. We won't be singing of ourselves, but we'll be singing of him. Thank God today for Psalm 110. Let's pray. Again, Father, we feel that sense of being overwhelmed at the tremendous truths and the visions of glory that are just portrayed to us in this holy book, the scriptures, the Bible. We can only wonder what we might feel in thy presence when first those true visions of glory upon us shall burst. It's beyond our understanding and comprehension, but we bow this morning as those who were once sheep that were going astray. Yet through the wondrous voice that called us, we have returned to the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. O Lord God, accept our thanksgiving. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship communion of the Holy Spirit be our blessed portion once again as we continue on in the enemy's land, fighting the good fight of faith, until our Lord shall come. Amen.